Hello, and welcome to Talking Sense, part of the Ungagged podcast family. I'm your co-host, Kat. I'm your co-host, Erin. And we're two North American new Scots attempting the impossible. Talking Sense about Scottish politics. So today we're going to talk about the thing that is on everyone's mind, independence. Yeah, so um, obviously the the court case has just come down um, on Wednesday um, saying that the the Scottish Parliament does not have the ability to legislate for an advisory referendum on its own. And um, that is obviously disappointing, but it is what it is. This isn't the court's fault. They just interpret the law. They don't make it. So they've just clarified the position that we're in. And again, while that's disappointing, this is, you know, still a step um, on the road towards independence because we've had to explore all options. Um, Even though we didn't get the result we wanted, it wasn't a waste of time. This was something that had to be done to know whether this was something we could do or not. And now we know that it isn't. Um, Kat, I was wondering if you just give us a timeline of how we got to here just quickly. Sure. In the past, I, I, I don't have the dates. In the past year, um, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SP and the first minister, announced that a, a new roadmap to independence. And, and this is, uh, a lo- on most of this stuff, the Greens and the SNP agree. Some things um, were SNP only, but like the intervention in the court case was specifically the SNP intervened which is all well and good, but on the main points, um, both parties are kind of in in lockstep. So Nicola Sturgeon stated that she was going to request a Section 30, uh, which is the first preference for gaining independence. Uh, And if that was rejected, which it was immediately by Boris Johnson two prime ministers ago, um, (laughs) two prime ministers, a lifetime, and also just a few months ago, so then they sent the case to court, to the, the UK Supreme Court, and the result that came down was not unexpected. Um, like Aaron said, this is just a next step. It wasn't a waste. Uh, this is part of the mandate that the SP and the Greens, the, the government through the Butte House Agreement were elected on. So the next step um, is a little bit more murky, but what we want to do is instead of talking about all the process and all the hurdles, we want to talk about what independence is for, what we, Aaron and I, would like to see in an independent Scotland, because I don't know about you, Aaron, but the yes events sometimes feel like they've lost their luster. To me, I don't want independence in and of itself as an end goal. Um, do you have anything yeah, I mean, for me, um, the thing that drew me to the Yes Movement back in 2014 and has kept me here is the sort of positive and hopeful vision for what Scotland can be when it when we're independent. Um, and sometimes um, we spend a lot of time uh, debating the the process of how to get there, um, you know, whether or not we should have the, the plebiscite election or um, what the, the, the minutia of our, our economic, but not so much economic, but of our currency policy is going to be. And we lose sight of what independence means, which is the ability to, to choose our own future 
Um, and so what we thought we'd do is a, a series of episodes just focusing on uh, the specific uh, things that we find, the specific reasons that we think independence is important and the specific things that we want from independence. So to all our listeners, if there are things that you specifically want to see in an independent Scotland or, or something that means something to you, please get in touch and email us at uh, talkingsense.ungagged at gmail.com because we do want to hear from you and, and we'll put this out on social media to try and get some conversation started because what Aaron and I want to see isn't necessarily what's the most important per thing to everyone else. Um, but a few things that we've already discussed we will we will do future episodes on are human rights, equalities, justice, uh, our place in the world. Um, so if you have any comments on that or if there's something else that that you think, uh, neither of us are economists, but I know economy is a big part of that. But we'll probably have to get a specialist on and, a, and an expert <laughs> for that episode. Um, but shall we shall we kick off today with uh, or shall we kick off this series with the most important thing to us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, human rights. <laughs> human rights. Um, yes. I think it's fairly obvious by now that we are both um, new Scots. Um, and one of the key human rights issues that uh, Westminster has been has been terrible on and that um, the SNP and the Greens are consistently some of the most progressive parties in Europe on is, is immigration. Um, Scotland, um, as a country, has a history of being basically forcibly depopulated and um, Scottish people have a history of being essentially forcibly made to be migrants to other countries. So I think there's an understanding here of what it means to be um, a migrant, both in terms of being an immigrant and in terms of being a refugee. And there's a, a welcoming atmosphere um, and a consistently pro-immigrant message from our parties of government that you don't even see in the opposition down south. And until we have the ability to control our own immigration policy, which we will only get through independence, uh, we won't be able to attract the people that we need. We won't be able to provide a safe haven to refugees um, or just have basic human dignity for anyone who wasn't born here. Absolutely. I mean, this is going to, I mean, immigration is economically necessary as well. So that will play into how the country functions as an independent nation. But really, this is about treating people like people, treating them with dignity and respect. And, um, you know, Scotland isn't perfect. I won't say there aren't any anti-immigrant people in the independence movement, but this is something that has been agreed on Um by the parties of government and and by the yes movement in general as as one of our our touchstone you know baseline issues going forward so we'll talk about this as immigrants but as uh immigrants who uh are not asylum seekers who are not fleeing war um but we we do want to include them in on this mm -hmm. yeah it is important to sort of acknowledge that we're both from sort of we're both kind of white people from English-speaking countries who came here voluntarily. So that is a one experience of immigration. Um, though on the other hand, we both did not come through the EU citizen route, which is 
a very different sort of experience of of navigating the the home office. Absolutely, um, we do have we have a multi tiered immigration system in the UK currently, <laughs> and we're not very many tiers down on the uh, on the um, privilege level. But we mm-hmm. you know we want to acknowledge that there are you know there's people from Ireland don't have to have go through any kind of immigration. People from the EU do have to fill out paperwork or did, you know, EU citizens that already lived here before Brexit had to fill out paperwork. And now they're kind of um, thrown into the same pot with us a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do we, I mean, gosh, with immigration and the, the situation in this country, I'm not, I'm not even sure where to start because um, if we start from the position that um, the the parties of government in Scotland are are pro-immigrant, which they are possibly possibly the most pro-immigrant parties of government in Europe, um, and we contrast that to Westminster, there's just there's just no comparison. There again, it's not perfect here, but I, I I get lost for words and start stumbling over myself every time I think about the Rwanda plan. Um, and I think about the fact that we have a, a home secretary who was briefly not home secretary and is now home secretary again, who says it's it's her dream to see people deported before Christmas. And and the people she wants to see de- deported are people who are fleeing conflict and fleeing poverty and who absolutely positively need a safe place to go. Erin, um, you've, you've spoken before about Rwanda's LGBT uh, plus, in the first of its kind in the UK, um, there was a Labour government uh, that tried to deport people as well. To and and that never went through, but um, this is still being battled in the courts. The Rwanda plan, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you're bringing up that there was there was a Labour plan that was similar. It just it just reminds me that like on the first day of you know the SP party conference. I know we did an episode about party conference already. The the media narrative that they were trying to shape was that the SNP doesn't think there's any difference between Labour and the Tories and like, you know, are they crazy? Well, you've got Keir Starmer saying that he's no different. So I just, you know, a lot of times when we talk about how our policy is different from the policy in Westminster, um, you have people push back and say like, well, that's because there's a Tory government. You wouldn't be saying that if there was a Labour government. This isn't about independence or the structure of Westminster. This is about there being a government you don't like. But the culture of UK-wide politics is such that you do have Starmer saying that there isn't much difference between him and the Tories on immigration and that he wants to control borders and not bring back free movement. And um, and that the only thing that he wouldn't do is the Rwanda plan, but he would still as far as I understand, be wanting to talk about illegal pushbacks and um, this weird fixation on Albanians. And I like, I actually don't understand the weird fixation on Albanians at all. And I just, this is an independence issue and not just in that we don't like the existing government issue because there is almost no space between the government and the opposition at Westminster. Yeah, uh, in fact, so interestingly enough, Keir Starmer spoke during the Edinburgh Fringe and and said in Scotland that he wanted to end 
the uh, the deportation system. But you know that was in August, and in October, uh, Labor Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves calls for deportation to be ramped up. So this is truly a situation where uh, we're not talking about a Tory government; we're talking about the parties in power in Westminster, in power and in opposition. Um, and just, I mean, who wants that? This is a, regardless of the economic problems that the UK has, this is a wealthy country. You know, people have running water and roofs over their heads. Maybe they don't have heat all winter long because we're not doing that great. But um, there's places that are absolutely unlivable. And it's it just, to me, it's, it's, it's not, it's not okay to talk about deporting people. You know, no human being's illegal. You know, um, to me, part of, you, you kind of touched on the heart of some of the problems um, with um, how immigration has become a sort of mass populist issue um, at the Westminster level is um, we've had, you know, austerity since like 2010, right? Um, when the first coalition when the coalition got elected. Um, so we've been doing austerity for off and on for, for 12 years. We've been doing Tory governments for 12 years. Um, Cause like, let's not pretend the coalition wasn't just a Tory government. Um, and so of course people's lives have gotten worse. Services have been cut. Um, no new, n- nothing new has been made to, you know, adjust for just normal population increases. Um, councils have been starved to the bone. Um, Every, everything is in the kind of terrible shape it's in. We're in this position where people can't have heat all winter because of 12 years of Tory governments. Um, Tory governments that are just going to keep getting elected um, with, without us. We haven't voted one since 1955. Um, and, and then it becomes so easy for them to point the finger and say, oh, well, the reason that your services have such a long wait time and you can't see your GP is because there's so many immigrants, which there aren't that many. I just want to like throw out there that I'm Canadian and 24% of the population of Canada are immigrants and we don't have these problems. It's not about immigrants. It's about underinvestment. Um, and it's, and it's about an easy, an easy blame, right? Blaming immigrants. Um, now some immigrants and asylum seekers cannot find work that doesn't mean they don't want to work, right? Um, it is very difficult to get a job when you need a tier two visa. Um, there's there's refugees from Afghanistan and, and from Ukraine who are highly skilled. Um, and there's not really a path to employment. And, you know, we, we talked about this in the Palestine episode. We've talked about it before where, you know, I'm not talking about paid work, but people human beings need to have a purpose, right? Um, so like, this is not an ableist anti-disability um, anti, um, take. This is a, you know, regardless, I mean, I'm a disabled person. So when I can't work, I need to have a goal. I need to, I mean, there's volunteering and there's stuff like that, but immigrants who do work, they put money into the economy. They, they have a lot of added value. And, and blaming immigrants, you know, that would fund services if it mm-hmm. would be easier for immigrants to find work. Yeah, it's just, there's just this timeline there of starving, starving services and starving councils and um, starving the NHS intentionally um, when borrowing was cheap and we should have been investing. 
um, and then turning around and blaming immigrants for um, the, the lack of availability of services, which is nothing to do with it at all. But it's easy to rile people up by that because people are already angry and upset about how everything's falling apart and they need something to blame. Um, I honestly think part of the reason that we don't have as much anti-immigrant sentiment up here is because the Scottish government has been buffering the worst excesses of Tory austerity. So the population isn't looking for someone to blame because there isn't so much to blame for. Yeah, things aren't as great up here as they could be, but when you compare it to how things have been going down south, it, 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 it's incomparable. Um, and, and, and so like, I, I find it hard not to see Brexit, which was almost entirely a vote based on anti-immigrant sentiment as not being a symptom of austerity and people again looking for something to blame when really it was just the Tories who were to blame all along and just they're just handing them more power and it's just getting worse and that makes it easier again to continue blaming immigrants there was a story just yesterday where the times is basically trying to um to gin up sentiment against nigerian students um mm -hmm. There was there were like fifty thousand Nigerian students brought fifty one thousand dependents with them. It's like so you're saying most students brought a partner and a tiny minority have one kid. That's mm -hmm. that's what you're complaining about. And like mm -hmm. students partners are allowed to work, so you're complaining that they brought people who are contributing to the economy. International students are paying like something ridiculous, like twelve or thirteen thousand pounds a year in tuition. That's like oh, way a more billion than that. pounds. Of I can't remember because I started 10 years ago and it was 10,000. So it's probably way more than that now. Um, but they, they, I know it, it came up when people were discussing it, that that's something like a billion pounds of tuition those 50,000 students are, are bringing. And, yeah, and actually the universities are pushing back saying like, we're not going to be able to fund anything. Uh, we're not going to be competitive on the world stage if you, if you do this. And as somebody who is here on a, on an international student visa, and have has depend actually I'm on my husband's and I'm the dependent at the at the moment. Um, we wouldn't be here, you know. And and if they mm. do go forward with this policy, uh, it would destroy our lives. It would completely uproot us and destroy our lives. We have to pay a, a health surcharge for the NHS, so we're not getting NHS services for free. Um, if a partner works, you have to pay 75% council tax. So you're paying in and all the, and you have to prove that you have enough money to move to the UK before you're granted a visa, which means that all the money that we're spending while living here in Scotland did not, or in, in the UK, did not originate from the UK. It's just being dumped directly into the economy. Yeah, you are bringing free money to the UK. And not only mm -hmm. that, you are coming here as like, working age adults who weren't who the UK didn't pay to educate and raise so you are coming as like economically productive working age adults that the UK didn't have to yeah raise and have all your childhood medical care and pay for your you know primary and high school yeah and that's the same thing with, also, with students sorry and also we're no recourse to public funds so any kind yeah. of like grant or anything that you hear about is not available to to student immigrants or most immigrants i think refugees get some but not not asylum most. seekers get a tiny 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 allowance like something like 30 pounds a week it is nothing um and that that is it um and basically no one else has uh, access to public funds i was here 
on a student visa for four years before switching to spousal visa, three years before switching to spousal visa. Um, and then that's five years before you get indefinite leave to remain. So I was here eight years with no recourse to public funds because you don't get recourse to public funds until you have indefinite leave. Um, and the impact that has on immigrant women is unbelievable because um, I don't know if most of our listeners know this, but most women's refuges use housing benefit to fund the woman's space there. If you don't have access to housing benefit, you essentially don't have access to women's refuges. So um, no recourse to public funds is a human rights issue, not just as an immigration issue, but as a women's rights issue. Yeah. Um, um, and again, like students are a piece of this puzzle, right? Um, it's not it's not a coincidence that they name how many Nigerian people come with with dependents. You know, do they talk about how many American students come with dependents, you know, no, who are overwhelmingly, you know, North American, Canadian American who are overwhelmingly white? No, they're not going to vilify uh, people coming from other wealthy countries, whether the people coming over are wealthy or not. Actually, I think yeah. isn't Nigeria a fairly wealthy country. I could be wrong. Pardon? I'm not Nigeria sure, but they're has not a lot white, of oil so yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is exactly what it's about. That is the Times blatantly saying there are Africans in our country that have spouses and children. That is what the Times is saying. Oh, how on brand for the Times. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing. Again, not that I want to talk about the economics of it. But when students come here, if they choose to stay when they're done their degree, which many don't, many take their degree and go home and that they've just paid the universities a ton of money so they can keep running and then they go home. But when they choose to stay, that is a huge benefit because again, you are getting highly educated working age adults that you did not have to pay to raise. That is a huge benefit. There is a reason that um, many countries, funnily enough, the UK included, have a visa program that just lets you come here for two years if you're under 30 essentially, because it is actually a huge boon to any country to attract working age adults. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, it's just absurd, uh, blatantly racist. Um, and I, it's, it's just, it's just constant. If, if it isn't stories about being afraid of Nigerian students, it's talking about Albanians on small boats as if there's this massive invasion happening. Do you know what the entire population of Albania is? It's 2.8 million. Jeez. We're getting so we they, could they're acting, fit the entirety into Scotland and probably be okay. And probably barely notice. So they're, they're acting like like um, like people fleeing what are legitimately terrible situations in Albania. Um, there is there is a serious situation with um, revenge killings and people being targeted by organized crime. And, and these are things that you can claim asylum from. Um, you know, over 50% of Albanian um, asylum claims are accepted um, and they're acting like these are illegitimate asylum seekers. And like Albania, again, 2.8 million is capable of staging some sort of like overwhelming mass migration. It's just, it, there's always something that they find a reason to to, to try to gin up fear when there's nothing to be afraid of. And if I mean, I mean if the real problem about, is the people mm -hmm. in power and their policies. Yeah. 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 Well, that's it. Because if we want to talk about small boat crossings, you know why those are happening? Because there are no legitimate 
like no like legitimate quote unquote um, ways to apply for asylum in the UK. You can't, we don't, we treat people as illegitimate if they cross irregularly, um, even though everyone has like, we, under international law, everyone has a right to claim asylum in whatever country they arrive in, however they arrive. Um, we don't have any um, way for people to apply from whatever country they happen to be in to establish a, a safe and legal route. Um, we don't allow people to come here without visas, essentially. Like, there's no, they, they talk about people shouldn't be crossing in small boats, they should be following the legitimate routes. There are no legitimate routes. Mm -hmm. And then we say that people should be pushed back to France who already take more immigrants than we do and more um, refugees than we do. And who have some laws about like anti-hijab laws and stuff that are, aren't really okay. Are very, very repressive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we've talked about how the UK immigration, how the UK home office treats immigrants and some specifics from our lived experience. But I want to pivot a little bit to in what we want to see in independent Scotland because it it isn't perfect. What what's happening? There are some things that I'm seeing that I don't necessarily like. Um, mm -hmm. The most the most visible right now that I can see is that um, all the all the um, taking on immigrant uh, refugees from Ukraine, which is a good thing. Let's just mm -hmm. underline that right there. It's great that we're taking everybody we can from Ukraine. But we have not shown the same sort of um, welcoming, uh, at least not in policy, to refugees from Afghanistan, refugees from Yemen, other non-white war-torn mm -hmm. areas where, mm -hmm. where people are coming in. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, the Scottish government is under the UK home office with how many immigrants they can take in. But there are programs where Ukrainians can go to university. That's great. Why not all refugees, right? Mm -hmm. Why not? If, if that means that you can't take on as many refugees, maybe it does need to be in certain areas. You know, I don't, I don't want to say put limits on it, but I do know there's a fixed budget, but there should be something um, for everyone. Maybe allow borrowing powers so that people can get student loans to go to uni. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's very, very stark to me to see Scotland throw open, and the UK, in words at least, throw open their arms for Ukrainian refugees when there's a lot of people from Afghanistan uh, who are still in temporary accommodation and don't have, you know, that's going to create problems in our society of uh, le legacy asylum seekers, no matter where they're from, seeing the Ukrainians get a good deal. Um, and I say good deal. That's not what I mean by good deal, but they're, they're getting certain benefits and prioritizations that uh, aren't being applied to everyone. Now, this is something that during a recession with a fixed budget, I don't think there's much we can do about it, but I can't help but think if Scotland is running its own immigration system, I would that would be something I'd be campaigning to make different if the same policies were still in place. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of with a fixed budget, because we can't even begin to fix the problems that we have um, with not being able to treat people equally, because of course, a lot of what we're doing for Ukrainian refugees is on the basis of the UK-based programs, um, not being able to 
provide as much as we would like uh, because we can't borrow and we can't increase taxes mid-year and we can't we just can't respond nimbly to to emerging events because of how limited the devolution settlement is um and god yeah there's so much that i would like to see in an independent scotland i mean um we wouldn't have uk home office immigration detention centers on our soil um mm. we wouldn't have to uncavel anymore um we, or how about all the temporary accommodation that's run by an evil corporation that isn't taking human rights and dignity into account. They're just counting their nickels and dimes. It's almost like the uh, incarceration, the private incarceration system in, in America. Yeah. I mean, we had the, we also had like the, that horrific um, stabbing during, during COVID at a, a hotel where they were keeping um, asylum seekers. And again, that was in Glasgow, but that's home office policy, not our policy. Um, and when you have asylum seekers, many of whom are traumatized people, and you basically keep them locked up in little hotel rooms um, with no access to be able to make their own food, no sort of freedom, being stuck in a, a tiny room, it just it is going to breed problems. Um, people need decent, dignified accommodation. Um, and that's that is, not temporary. That's people not need temporary. to be welcomed into a community where they can get to know mm -hmm. their neighbors. We, we mm -hmm. talked about um, in, in Glasgow, the, the big uh, stop of the immigration vans was because people had neighbors and they saw yes. what was happening. Exactly. That doesn't happen if you're in a hotel in a largely commercial district. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kenmere Street happened because it happened on Kenmere Street, a street that is in a neighborhood. Exactly. Um, but, exactly. And um, then also there's there's like not everybody has the same size nuclear family like Afghani refugees have often large extended families or large large families um whether it's because there's grandparents in the in the same household like we don't have social housing built for them but we we need to right because actually a lot of the people coming from Afghanistan are also highly skilled we don't want them out in the field, like, would you want to go out and, I mean, I might go be fine going and picking in the fields for a while, but you know, it wouldn't, if I'm skilled and I'm trained in a certain job, I, it's what a waste of all these brains of all these people. And, and, uh, it's gotta be depressing and, and downheartening. Like, you know, my husband looked for a job for ages and it really took a toll on his mental health and, and he, we're not refugees. You know, it's just mm -hmm. difficult to find a tier two visa job in Scotland. Well, the, and that, of course, is like assuming you get refugee status. The asylum process takes so mm -hmm. long. I just um, just to draw the, the, the legal distinction between asylum seeker and refugee. Um, asylum seeker is a person who has come here seeking asylum and hoping to get refugee status. Um, but until you get refugee status, which at which point you do have employment rights and things, um, you basically are stuck on this tiny little allowance. You don't really have a lot of control over where you live and you aren't allowed to work. So this is again, another thing where UK government policy has created a, created a problem and then blamed the, the migrants themselves for it. So they say, oh, well, the asylum seekers come here because we have these generous allowances. They're, they're not, they're barely enough to, they're not even really enough to eat. Um, and, uh, and they don't wanna work. Well, no, they do want 
to work actually they're not allowed to work and as Katz pointed out many of these are skilled people who are just being denied the opportunity to build better lives for themselves and contribute to the economy um, and then getting blamed for it because of mm-hmm. terrible policy so and when we talk about the UK policy and as Aaron highlighted uh, the prioritization of Ukrainian refugees is a UK government program, right? Um, this is another policy that is intended to create division, uh, maybe amongst the immigration, amongst the asylum seeker and refugee populations as well. So, I, I mean, divide and conquer is something the UK government has perfected over hundreds of years. Uh, when people say, why would you want to break up this hundreds of year old union. I'm like, because like what they've gotten good at is holding on to wealth and power. What they haven't gotten good at democracy. They haven't gotten good at human rights. You know, mm-hmm. every day we're, I mean, all these funding cuts, the reason it takes so long for people to be granted refugee status is mm-hmm. because of funding cuts. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the thing. Um, this should be a wealthy country. I. I have a hard time calling it one in the sense that Sweden is a wealthy country um, because it, it, in some ways it isn't because of the last um, 12 years and frankly, the sort of pro-finance industry sort of layered years before that. Um, this is a country that has immense wealth, but that it is concentrated in the hands of a few people and very little of that is finding its way into the treasury. And then when it does, they find ways to just give it back. Um, and that is our money that is being siphoned away by billionaire class and not being reinvested. And this is becoming a poor country because of that. But there is the money there that should be being used to build better lives for all of us. And it isn't. Um, I think that's a really important distinction. You... <laughs> Pardon? I think that's a really important distinction because like Canada and America are wealthy countries. They're still horrendous poverty inside the countries because of how that money is spent. Um, but I, I think that the UK is up there uh, with the the numbers of wealthy countries who misspend their wealth and do not, you know, imp- provide that wealth to their citizens. So um, we've sort of drifted back into complaining about Westminster and uh, terrible UK policy. But if we're going to talk about sort of what we want out of an independent Scotland and why independence matters from the perspective of, of immigrants um, and from the perspective of immigration policy as a human rights issue. And gosh, I think we're going to have to just make this an entirely immigration issue and maybe the next one can be about employment rights. <laughs> Is um, my, my vision for an independent Scotland um, is an independent Scotland in the EU, EU to begin with. So I, obviously want to see the return of free movement, um, where we have, again, this is a mutual right, a right for European citizens to come and live and work here and for us to go and live and work in Europe again. Um, I want to see um, a, a refugee policy and like an asylum policy that actually works, that has very clear legal safe routes for people to come here so that nobody has to risk their lives on small boats so that it is easy to come here um, so that um, people can have their applications processed quickly and get settled in their new homes 
Um, I definitely want to see the end of no recourse to public funds. Um, I think that anyone who is coming here um, should have all of the rights that citizens have in terms of being able to access social security systems. Again, we are here contributing, um, whether that is economically or socially, we are here and we are bringing something and we are part of this country. Um, I, I mean, Scotland has done within its limited you know, abilities right now so much to make immigrants feel welcome. I think it is so important that we have changed our, our voting to allow anyone who lives in Scotland to vote. That is a huge step and that is a world leading step um, to, to say that everyone who lives here is equal. And when we're independent, I want us to follow through on that and, and make us truly equal in every other way. I mean, <laughs> I, I make no secret of the, the fact that I, I generally favor open borders, but I know it'll take us a long time to get there. But even if we just, um, do basic things like end no recourse to public funds, um, create easy to use, safe and legal routes for people to come here so they don't have to risk their lives. Oh, and uh, one final thing would be um, the Canadian and American model of uh, birthright citizenship. Um, because right now we have, well, during the Windrush um, scandal, um, and still an ongoing problem now, is we have people who were born here, who have lived their whole lives here, finding out as adults that they're not British citizens. And um, if we have birthright citizenship, that would never happen to anyone. So that would be my one of my key demands of an independent Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, in an independent Scotland, I want the government to take care of people who aren't white more and to care about them in general and, and their way of lives. You know, um, we're both from, we're both white people from very white countries as well. Um, I think Scotland does a lot of good in this, but I, I think that we have a long way to go. And I think part of that is educating the public. You know, we still have the British press that is still feeding a drip of immigrants bad and they're often blaming black and brown people who, you know, every human being has worth and, and puts things in. Um, as the climate crisis gets worse, as global temperatures rise, not only is there gonna be famine, there's gonna be war. And the war is, is gonna be in countries in, it's gonna be worse in the global South. And yes, I mean, I think what you said about open borders, even in, you know, we're, we're all socialists here, we're all lefties, but that's not necessarily an open border situation. You know, there are a lot of socialist countries who, who have very, have followed the global trend of increased bordering as they call it to put firmer checks. Um, I think it's really important that we focus on this. Um, if you want to take a, a even deeper dive than we've talked about with the asylum system, uh, Baroness Kennedy has just put out her second report on the independent commission of inquiry into asylum provision in Scotland. It's got a lot of good information and, and like one of the, the highlighted in the executive summary quotes is this is not about the numbers of people coming into the UK. It's about a failed system. So that's what I want to see in an independent Scotland. I want to see a system that works. Yeah, and I think I just want to um, double, just 
go back to what you were saying about increased bordering. So I think that's a concept that's really important for people to understand if they um, haven't heard of uh, bordering, like internal bordering as a concept before. So, um, and bordering is basically when you um, take the, the role of border and immigration enforcement and have it sort of weaved into every other service. So something that was fairly new when I came here as a student in 2012, and that only got worse, was that um, I was a PhD student and PhD students in the UK, um, just in case you have international listeners, don't have classes or anything. You are just an independent researcher. You just are sort of responsible for yourself. You don't have any lectures you need to be at. You don't, et cetera. So the, the border agency basically wanted to find a way to track that all of the PhD students are actually engaging with their courses and are where they say they're supposed to be and haven't become evil immigrants off working instead of studying and blah, blah, blah. Um, so their solution to that was that universities now had to track basically the whereabouts in international PhD students in a way that they don't have to for domestic PhD students. And I would get, and I don't know if you know anything about academics, but they are not the best at interacting with the tech systems or doing admin. So I would get these yellow alerts every three weeks or so saying that like your supervisor hasn't noted that you have met and like this needs to be reported to the like UK border agency. So like basically they're making academics and university administrators and like PhD supervisors into border agents. And this is something that happens in other contexts. Like there was, uh, was it a couple of years ago, maybe right before the pandemic, they um, were talking, uh, they started introducing this idea that um, landlords should have to be checking passports um, because they could be liable for housing illegal immigrants. Um, so it's making landlords into border agents. Um, and th this goes on and on and on as I try to, to introduce um, more people who need to be sort of responsible for checking that the people they are interacting with are, are not evading border controls. So it's internal bordering. Um, and that obviously has the most effect on, um, on people of color who are going to be suspected of not being citizens. Because nobody, apart from the university, nobody suspects me of not being legally here despite my accent because I'm white and I speak English and they just assume I've done the right thing because of that. Uh, people even start talking to me about, like people start saying anti-immigrant stuff to me, not about me, but because they assume as an English speaking white person, I'm on their side against immigrant, even though I am an immigrant. And this doesn't just happen here. This happened in Canada, actually. There was um, my partner who is Scottish and I uh, were in Canada looking for a flat uh, with our flatmate who is Canadian, uh, Canadian Chinese. Um, she was born in Canada. Her family has been in Canada forever. Her mom's side of the family is actually French Canadian, not Chinese. And um, Paul with his very thick Scottish accent, uh, the landlord's just chatting at him like nothing, then turns to our, our flatmate, who again was born in Canada and her mother's side of the family has been in Canada for like 400 years, says, is your family in this country now? So this is like the sort of internal bordering affects people of color the most, even if they've been here for like a hundred years. Um, so that, that's horrific. Um, and it also um, just makes people more vulnerable in everyday life. Like, what if you are a person who was born here but doesn't have a passport because not everybody does? 
birth certificates aren't a proof of citizenship because you don't have birthright citizenship. It, oh, yeah. It's just, it, yeah. It, <sighs> it's just horrific. And it just makes every everyday life for everybody part of the, the, the horrific immigration enforcement system. And, and again, so like I'm I'm gonna quote this uh this report on refugees and asylum seekers by the independent commission inquiry. It says this country needs immigration. That is one of the highlight things. Scotland needs immigration. We're only five and a half million people. That that's a lot. That's a lot of open space. <laughs> that's a lot of things. Like um, you think about rural economy and, and how much more we could do to build up town centers and, and make it a better place to live. Um, we just, you know, yeah, immigrants I mean, are good I've... actually. <laughs> no matter the skill level no matter the color of their skin. <laughs> well, yeah, just speaking of like rural economy, a few years ago, a Canadian couple who were running a like Highland Village's only shop got deported because it wasn't profitable enough per the like London-based rules on what constitutes profitability. Like we can't even like have entrepreneur visas that are based on what a reasonable expectation of profit in like the Highlands would be because it has to be based on London. Like there's, um, you know, there's a requirement for earnings to be able to have a spousal visa you have to be earning a certain amount to be able to have your partner live with you in this country um and that is even if you're a british citizen you, you aren't allowed to have a foreign spouse if you don't earn a certain amount and that there's no taking into account the fact that the cost of living here is less than it is in most of england um not that there should be any amount anyway but even even if they have to have these stupid rules there's nothing taking into account that life is different here um, it just, it's just horrific. Um, and we, we can be free of that and we can have a system that works for Scotland and is fair and treats people with dignity and brings us the people that, that we need, um, which is just people in general and takes care of, and takes care of um, people who are, who are fleeing um, climate breakdown and conflict and, and, um, and violence and persecution. And again, I know I said this at the start, but I would really like Scottish people when they're thinking about this to reflect on the fact that this is a country that has been forcibly depopulated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you froze again, Erin. Oh, fuck, um, really where? You, you said economically depopulated and then it froze. Um, Okay. I, I will. So I said forcibly depopulated, but um. There we go. This is this yeah. is a country that has. Okay. So I, what I really want is for when for Scottish people, when you think about the issue of immigration, is to think about how this is a country that has historically been forcibly depopulated, and it doesn't really hit you until you go to the Highlands and you can see all of the the ruins of villages that were thriving places one day and then very quickly gone and just the foundations of them are just scattered everywhere. Um, what we think of as empty land in the Highlands used to be villages and farms and people and they're just gone. And those people were forced to become essentially refugees um, and whether they ended up um, abroad and you know all the horrific history that was involved in settlement of um, the colonies or ended up um, being 
displaced to, to Glasgow or displaced elsewhere. Um, we have a history as a people of having experienced that. And um, part of rebuilding our country and rebuilding our independence is um, being able to repopulate those areas and also being able to see other people who are in those circumstances of being forced to flee, whether violence or, or poverty or um, having their land seized and, and give them a home too. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I don't, if listeners know, I do a lot of work in the Northeast of Scotland and the Northeast is an incredibly oil and resource rich area. Um, but the, the area, there's so much poverty. There's so much poverty in Aberdeenshire and it, it just, it blows my mind with all the fishing, with all the, in, there's so much industry, but we're living in an age of global capitalism where the money doesn't get put back into the community. So maybe we'll talk about that more on the economic episode, but yeah. <laughs> um, this is part of being an open, being able to fit as many immigrants as we can in Scotland and give them a good life is the economy is going to be part of that and, and putting, putting, you know, all of our resources back into our own economy. But right now it's so much of it is getting siphoned off. Um, and, and a lot of it is profiteering and it's not okay. Uh, um, I don't know if I have anything more to say on. I think that's a good place that. to wrap up. <laughs> a few quid keeps us going. Donate at paypal.me forward slash ungagged left. <laughs>